Welcome back to the Curdverse. I'm Lisa Kaywood, corporate functionary by day, home cheesemaker by night. Today we're going to talk about stretched curd cheeses, so-called because the curd is stretched while the cheese is being made. Some stretched curd cheeses also get stretchy when they melt, like everyone's favorite pizza cheese, but not all stretched curd cheeses melt, and not all melty cheeses are made by the stretched curd method. Confused? That's okay. Later in the episode, we'll get into the difference between stretching and melting, and why some cheeses melt and some don't. But first, let's talk about why I'm not using the term often used by cheesemakers and mongers for this group of cheeses, which is pasta filata. First, it just isn't helpful when you're talking to your average English speakers. We often hear pasta and think of noodles. But the word literally just means paste. It can refer to dough of various kinds, including but not limited to noodles, as well as to cheese curd. Even in English, when we talk about cheese, we refer to the outside of the cheese as the rind and the interior as the paste. The filata, in pasta filata, is the past participle of the Italian verb filare, which means to spin something into thread. If you think of the word filament in English, that feel is referring to the very fine, thin wire thread that sparks inside a light bulb. So pasta filata is the Italian way of saying spun curd. It's useful to know the term as you explore the Western cheese world, if only because so many cheese people use it. But it unfortunately reinforces a very common misconception among English speakers that stretched curd cheeses begin and end in Italy. And nothing could be further from the truth. This cheese family stretches all the way around the world, and probably not from a starting point in Italy. Now, if you read much of anything in English about these stretched curd cheeses, at some point you'll be told that they were invented by the Romans in the first century CE or maybe the second. There are a few problems with this. The first is that I have never once seen anyone cite a source for this claim. Often you'll even find the exact same phrasing from one online source to the next, a good sign that everyone is copying everyone else without examining the claim critically. In my attempts to track down a source, I pinged Tom Natinas hosted the excellent Delicious Legacy podcast, since he spends a lot of time going through classical Greek and Roman writings on food, and also knows a lot about cheese. He was in fact rather surprised to hear the claim. He'd never encountered it before. He also had never come across any claims of a Greek origin for these cheeses. And he agreed if there were any chance at all of something being invented by the Greeks, he, as a Greek, would have heard all about it. The bigger problem, as with many cheese myths, is one of geography. The greatest density and diversity of stretched curd cheeses is actually in the Eastern Mediterranean, stretching from the Balkans around through the Middle East. In nature, an area with the greatest number of subspecies of a particular plant or animal is usually determined to be its point of origin, with genetic diversity dwindling the farther one gets from the organism's homeland. It's not unreasonable to expect the same to be true of cheese types. If these cheeses originated in Italy, especially during the Roman Empire, you would expect to find them all over the portions of Western Europe that the Romans conquered, and perhaps nor across North Africa as well. But Italy is the westernmost place these cheeses are traditionally made, until you cross the Atlantic and start trundling through Latin America in much, much later times. On the other hand, in Eastern Europe, there are stretched curd cheeses as far north as Poland, 
far from the ancient Roman world. And despite being first part of the Roman Empire and later an extension of the Arab world, North Africa is not known for these kinds of cheeses either. On the other hand, the eastern periphery of the arc I was just describing, from the Balkans through the Middle East, is where the renneted stretch curd cheeses we're most familiar with in the West, meet and overlap with a whole second clan of stretch curd cheeses. That's right, there are two types of stretch curd cheeses, one made with rennet, one without, and the latter is coagulated only with acid. This second group is found all across Asia, from the Caucasus region between the Black and Caspian Seas, so Armenia and Georgia, all the way to India and China. So what happened? Did one group of people develop the stretch curd technique and pass it along to the other, or were the two types invented independently? Either scenario is completely possible. But in any case, the two types likely spread independently, and perhaps slightly earlier in Eastern Asia than in the West. In the East, a notable focus on dairy and cheesemaking seems to have coincided with the spread of Buddhism out of India between the 200s and 600s CE. The Eastern Mediterranean world remained under a relatively common cultural sphere during that time frame, under the Byzantine Empire, and with the spread of Byzantine-style Christianity, especially during the Macedonian dynasty of the 800 to 1000 CE, Byzantine political and cultural influence spread through Central Europe and into the Caucasus as well. That 800 to 1000 time frame was also the last time that the southernmost part of Italy, Puglia, Calabria, Sicily, was part of the Byzantine Empire. Yet they would remain separate from the rest of Italy, culturally and politically, into the early modern era. And those regions are also where Italian stretched curd cheeses come from, until very recently. There was plenty of trade between the Byzantines and the neighboring Arabs even after the spread of Islam, but these cheese types aren't really found much south or west of Palestine in the Muslim world. So while the renneted versions may be native to the eastern Mediterranean, possibly the Balkans, they seem to have spread primarily through the Byzantine sphere, and then later within the, the Ottoman Empire that took its place. Have you ever wondered where the word mozzarella comes from? A lot of cheeses are named after the places they originated, but in this case, it comes from how it's made. Mozzare is an Italian verb meaning to cut or to lop off. Stracciatella, which refers to the stuffing of burrata, comes from stracciare, which means to shred or tatter. So what is all this cutting and tearing about? Isn't that what you do after the cheese is made when you shred it for lasagna or pizza? I mean, sure, but the real cutting is done in the course of cheesemaking. The stretching in stretch curd also refers to the work you do while making the cheese, not what happens when you go to eat it. So let's take a quick look at the basics of how these cheeses are made. First, let's talk about the Western renneted versions. As is often the case in warmer climates, these are virtually all thermophilic cheeses, meaning that when the milk is cultured, the milk is heated to temperatures above the animal's body temperature, which renders many classes of bacteria inactive and unlikely to multiply. Typically, the milk starts at around 90 Fahrenheit or 32 C, sometimes a few degrees higher, and after the starter culture and later rennet have been added and it's spent a couple of hours ripening and coagulating, the curd mass is cut. How small you cut that curd really depends on whether you're making a fresh cheese like mozzarella where you want to retain a fair amount of moisture or an aged cheese like cacciacavallo or caseri. 
in which case the curds will be whisked so that they're extremely small, the size of a grain of barley, perhaps. And then you'll gradually increase the heat of the pot to anywhere between 98F to 118F, which is 37 to 48C. Again, depending on how dry the end cheese needs to be. It'll be warmer for drier aged cheeses. Now, at this point, you can either let the curds settle under the hot way, where they'll knit together in a pebbly slab, or you can drain them and set them covered in a colander over your hot way, where they'll knit together in a pebbly slab. Either way, the game now is keeping them warm, say 102 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 39 to 40 degrees Celsius, to help them to continue to acidify. The goal is to get the curds down to a pH of between 5.4 and 5.1. Maybe at the higher end of the range for fresh cheeses, lower for aged. That's the sweet spot needed in order to stretch the curd. So why is that 5.4 to 5.1 pH range so important? Well, it's because of the way cheese curd is structured. Once curd has coagulated, the casein protein that makes up the structure of the cheese it, it, it forms a mesh that has calcium acting as the glue holding the mesh together. Oftentimes this mesh is sort of compared to a sponge. The holes in the casein sponge contain fat in some way. Now, in order for the curd to stretch, some of that calcium glue needs to be removed so that, that mesh can become looser and allow the protein strands to pull out straighter. The way that calcium gets removed from the curd is by being dissolved, by acid. And this is why we want to keep the newly formed curd pretty warm for a while. It's to keep the acid-producing cultures really active in the curd until it gets down to that pH sweet spot. But also, it can't dip much below that point, because if the curd gets too acidic, a different chemical reaction comes into play. And then the casein packages become attracted to each other and they aggregate together. That means the cheese won't melt very well because they're all kind of stuck together. So high acid cheeses like lactic cheeses and say feta also don't melt. They may soften upon heating, but not melt very much. If you want to know more about this, I've got links to a couple of articles on stretching and melting in the show notes. By the way, that 5.4 to 5.1 range is pretty common in a lot of cheese. It's where your firmer cheeses like the Alpine cheeses, your cheddars, your jacks end up for a very specific reason. That's where the finished curd needs to be in order to melt when heated. Again, stretching and melting are related, but not the same. Stretching is what's possible before the curd is finished. Melting is what happens when heat is applied to the finished cheese. But with the Alpine cheeses and so on, the acidification happens very slowly at room temperature while the cheese is being pressed. But stretch curd cheeses aren't pressed. And here's where they depart from a lot of other rennetted cheeses. So now we come to all that cutting and shredding and stretching that the language around this cheese family is referring to. Once your pebbly slab of curd reaches the right pH, you slice it into thin strips and dump a handful of strips into hot whey, handful or so at a time. Typically the whey is around 170F or 77C, though I've seen recipes suggesting as low as 150F or 65C and as high as 185F or 85C. The curd slabs quickly get very soft, close to melting, and when you stir them in a pot, they'll promptly morph together in a ball that winds around your spoon. And once that happens, you pull the mass out of the whey. 
pull the ball off the spoon, knead it a bit, and then pull it like taffy, folding it over a couple times as you go. It will immediately start to cool as you do this and resist stretching. So you dunk it back in the hot way and repeat the process a couple of times if you're making a softer cheese like mozzarella, or many, many more times if you're making a drier, chewier type of cheese. For example, there are braided cheeses popular all throughout the Middle East and up into the Caucasus, which are kneaded until the ribbon of curd splits into a lot of little strands. So as with kneading bread, the more you knead the curd and stretch it and fold it, the more the proteins go from a loose mesh to a layered structure of parallel protein strands, which will give it that characteristic chew. There are a couple of other reasons those highway temperatures are important beyond melting the curd slabs together. First, those temperatures deactivate both the acidifying cultures as well as any rennet. So once in the hot way, the cheese won't acidify further and the rennet in the curd can no longer fight against the contortions the curd undergoes. Also, these cheeses are typically from warm regions where milk can spoil quickly in the absence of refrigeration. But the strength of the proteins in the milk is important in order to get a good stretch with your curd. And pasteurizing the milk at too high a temperature can damage the proteins so much that they won't stretch properly. So in dunking the curd in the hot way, the curd typically reaches temperatures which in practice pasteurize the curd. So this step may well have been developed as a food safety measure in the days prior to widespread milk pasteurization. Okay, so once the cheese has reached that desired consistency, whether it's supposed to be a softer or more chewy cheese, it's formed into whatever the end shape is supposed to be. It could be a braid, it could be a twist, it could be a ball, and then it's dunked in cool water to effectively set the proteins in their desired state. And then the cheese is brined, or in some cases dry salted, and then it's ready to be eaten fresh, like mozzarella or burrata, or else aged for a few months at a cave, like many of the Eastern Mediterranean versions. Those can be called kashkavali or kasseri in Greece, in the Balkans in Turkey, kashkavan in the Levant, or in Italian, kachokavallo. As you head further north in Eastern Europe, you'll find smoked and aged versions of these similar types of cheeses. In Asian rennet-free versions of this cheese family, you heat the milk to the same temperature as in the rennet version, starting in the 90s Fahrenheit and getting up to about 110 or 43 C. Here you add a relatively large amount of acid, vinegar or lemon juice, to drive a form of coagulation. And this rapid acidification helps neutralize some of the microbial activity quickly. It also gets occurred at the required pH in a matter of minutes instead of hours, which means less time for bacterial growth of all kinds, because then the curd is just kneaded a bit to form a ball, and then goes straight into the hot water or whey, where again, it's effectively pasteurized before stretching. You can see why this approach would be beneficial in the extremely hot climate of South Asia where this form is common. This same type of rennetless stretched cheese is made in South China even today, and I'm told that the cheese strands are sometimes used in place of fried noodles in a crunchy dessert called sachima. beginning of this episode, I said that this group of cheeses stretches all the way around the world, and in fact there are several types of stretched curd cheeses found across Latin America. They use rennet and probably have their roots in the various stretched curd cheeses of Italy and the Eastern Mediterranean. But like other varieties of Latin American cheeses, they've adapted significantly to the environments and culinary traditions in which they're now made, and so they're distinctly different cheeses. A great example of this is Oaxacan cheese, or quesillo, as it's known in Mexico. 
Similar cheeses are made throughout Central America. In a controlled factory environment, the milk acidifies for a very long time, several hours, and the rennet period is much shorter than in typical European stretch cheeses. Instead of being stretched and folded, it's stretched slowly into one long, wide band. In fact, if you look at pictures of Casillo factories, you'll often see six or eight workers holding a long piece of cheese that might be 10 or 15 feet long. The cheese is then cooled before it's wrapped in its signature yarn ball shape. And because of the pre-cooling step, the layers stay separate rather than consolidating into a single ball. This means that the cheese can easily be torn into dry shreds, kind of like string cheese, for quickly adding to a tortilla on a hot grill. It's a favorite cheese for making quesadillas. Or consider provoleta, which is common in Argentina and Uruguay and also found elsewhere in South America. Argentina and its neighbor saw very high levels of immigration from Italy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And most sources agree that provoleta evolved from provolone, but it's drier than provolone, enough so that it's typically used as a grilling cheese, getting soft but not fully melting when placed over heat. And of course, that's perfectly in sync with a nation that famously grills large quantities of other proteins, like beef. Next time on the Curdverse, we'll again head over to Asia and learn about the traditional Chinese Curdverse. Dairying in China goes back a few thousand years, but it became rarer and rarer in the most heavily populated central regions of China starting in the 1600s, to the point that when I lived in Beijing in the mid-1990s, most Han Chinese were very dubious of animal milk and considered it foreigner food. Since then, China has become one of the world's largest milk producers, and there's been a revival of historical cuisine including dairy products. So join me again next time as we once again enter the Curdverse. Mm -hmm.